There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time to go to any of them. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat. On Cinema Smorgasbord presents Cinema Fantastica. We pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against each other. This time we're pitting the Korean revenge film Sue against the Korean horror film Epitaph. So let's begin. Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Liam O'Donnell, but today we are enemies because we are tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see who reigns supreme. How are you doing today, Liam? You know what, Doug? I am pretty okay. Uh, how's, how's the, how, are you, how have you settled after this big move? Almost not at all. Like You could tell <laughs> our priorities in that my the TV room is set up in that the TV and the Roku worked and the, right. and the movies are in the shelves. But then like <laughs> there's just piles of VHS throughout the room. And like, this is also where I pack packages for rough cut. So there's just like packing mm. things everywhere. <laughs> and then, uh, and then in our room, like the bed, like Maeve's bed is good. Our bed is good. And the bathroom stuff is away. And then the kitchen is mostly settled. And then every other place in the house, living room, dining room, most of our bedrooms that aren't the bed, is just chaos. Just utter and complete chaos. Because we just we have too much stuff. We're kind of pack rats. We don't know where to put stuff. We have less storage here. All the same boring bullshit, basically. It's just saying, like, hey, we don't have our shit together, and we don't know how to get it together. You you posted some photos of the house with you know all the boxes in the in the process of unpacking and it really kind of put a, a, a it really made clear the fact that unpacking for a house is very different than unpacking for a small apartment like I have I mean it's just like there's so much shit and there's only so much space to put that shit into right uh, and, and also it just seems like overwhelming every room is a new massive task to think about well and you know you may remember when i moved from philadelphia to easton i was moving from a full house to a smaller apartment and that adjustment was difficult i had to ditch a lot of stuff but that house in philly was a shared house so i moved from the there to a small part in easton but then i moved from a small part in easton to a house with just me my wife and then Maeve, our child we expanded so much more than I realized because I thought right. we were pretty good. It was a little messy, but you know it was mostly under control. Only now moving to still a full house, but just a different size house, am I realizing, wow, we really retained a bunch of dumb shit that we need to like get rid of. <laughs> and it's hard for me because some of that dumb shit I am like sentimentally attached to. I I, I didn't I I just never realized before, Doug, like. I am such a materialist and such a weird <laughs> pop culture person. Like on my desk right now, I have a Cabbage Patch Kid bank. And like <laughs> I I don't know there are things like important things for my life that I haven't found yet. I don't know where they are. But somehow this fucking Cabbage Patch Kid bank has made its way onto this table. And like, why? Why didn't I just throw it immediately in the in the trash? Well, because I've had it since I was a kid and it makes me laugh and I think it's funny. But like I put that somewhere. I gave that a place to be. But like important documents for my life are just in a pile on the floor in the dining room. You know what I mean? Like I just I, I think I have a weird attachment to 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 like kitschy bullshit and i and i can only get rid of that kitschy bullshit when i give it to someone but then i expect them to think it's as cool as i do which they never do (laughs) well liam i hope that you get that under control fairly soon i do want to bring up quickly before we get into the festival not to be a big downer that the reason that this episode is coming out a little late i was trying like i've I've been very good i think about making sure that episodes come out on time yes uh except for the week that we missed but that was obviously like that was a very unique circumstances this episode's coming out a little bit late because uh i found out on saturday morning that my mother had a stroke uh and it was obviously an incredibly dramatic thing uh it's not something you know, it's really one of those worst case scenarios. Maybe not worst case, but you get that uh, that message from like my sibling, which is like, "Call me when you get this," and you just know something terrible has happened. Right. Um, and so 
and and of course, at first, it's just no one knows what's going on. It's just this massive confusion. You're thinking of the worst case scenario all the time. Uh, thankfully, uh, it appears that it was a fairly minor stroke. Uh, my mother still has uh, her ability to communicate and. Uh, even though she's lost some feeling in one side of her body, she can walk, she can, uh, uh, you know, speak uh, just like she did before. She doesn't have a lot of kind of slurredness in her speech. So, I mean, it's it's still very scary. Uh, and those first 24 hours in particular were just a really kind of scary moment. But it meant that, obviously, didn't have a lot of time to focus on the movies that we were going to talk about today. But as of the recording, as of this recording right now, my mother is actually back home. She's already been discharged from the hospital. Uh, and this is back in Newfoundland, by the way, which, of course, makes it feel all the more far away from where I am in Ontario. But, uh, but I just wanted to send out a thanks to everyone who's reached out over the last few days and, uh, and checked in on me. It was it was my family's very close, so it was very overwhelming for me. So sure. uh, I'm glad that that we could wait a few days, get back into a mental place where I could talk about these movies without thinking about all this awful stuff going on in the world that was specific to me as opposed to the awful stuff in the world that's kind of just general to everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're always podcasting under duress of some kind because that's just <laughs> the world we live in. But Doug, I, I am I'm sad that this happened, but I'm so glad that things are the way they are now like it, that it could have been so much worse and uh we were we were over here uh praying for you you know pull, pull a little bit mm-hmm. of that that religiosity out on you uh it was mostly just my wife though i don't really do that sort of thing but, <laughs> but uh but yeah I, I you know i was i was uh i was you know glad to hear that things uh weren't any worse than they are but still i know that's a i i fear those calls my mom my mom is not yeah. young she is definitely getting up there and i every time my stepdad calls instead of my mom i think oh no what is yeah what's going right. on and it's 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 so far it hasn't been anything to worry about but like i you just never know so uh i i share that that anxiety with you as well sir well moving on liam to the reason that people are actually listening to this show theoretically you mean, uh, you mean <laughs> not they don't care about our lives you motherfuckers well, I mean, honestly, what I've discovered is that some people do care about our lives, but lots of others do not. All they want to hear about is the festival that we're going to be talking about today. Now, Liam, this one's kind of interesting because this is the Philadelphia Film Festival. Now, you are notoriously uh, a, a, a fan and former resident of the city of Philadelphia. I am. And this is a film festival that you've actually attended. Uh, the Philadelphia Film Festival, I would say, has played a large part both in my uh, growth and passion as a film fan, as a cinephile, maybe even you could say, uh, and uh-huh. also my deep cynicism about film and the film community. Uh, it is a it is a festival that has uh, been running for a while, and it has has I think been a mixed bag for many people. On one hand, some of my best memories of anything are, are at the Philadelphia Film Festival uh, of getting to see films um, that I might not have seen otherwise or getting to see big films with directors there or, or whatever it is, you know? Um, and I think uh, it's gone through a lot of different changes and, and we're specifically looking at a time when the Philadelphia Film Festival was pretty well known for its after hours programming with the Danger After Dark program. So Danger After Dark was a segment i guess or a category of the festival that was dedicated to quote-unquote fantastic film genres so i guess equivalent to something like the uh midnight madness at tiff and or even like the entire fantastic fest film festival it's dedicated to horror and sci-fi and genre films and who and now there was a programmer who worked on it for years do you know his name Travis Crawford, uh, and it was connected. This was in the days when the TLA and Philadelphia Film Festival were still connected. Uh, if people are interested in the TLA, whether that's the original Theater of the Living Arts or what would later become the uh, kind of like video powerhouse. TLA was a series of video stores, but they also did releasing. Um, right. And TLA Video, the part that was uh, specifically queer films, became one of the largest queer film distributors in the world really um and so uh if you're interested in that history uh get on google type my name in type in ray (laughs) ray murray and you'll find an interview i did with ray murray the man who not only helped found the philadelphia film festival but tla and a bunch of other things including artsploitation films which is why i was talking to him at the time specifically but anyways there's a long long history of relationships that uh you know, some of them were great and some of them soured. But at the time, Danger After Dark was specifically presented by the TLA. And it was really the the edgy 
sort of transgressive part of the Philadelphia Film Festival. Um, and really, the TLA went on to found QFest, and QFest in Philly was uh, one of the largest queer film festivals in the country. And so, you know, there's a lot of relationships there. Ray Murray has been a real sort of uh, uh, powerhouse for independent thinking and film stuff in Philadelphia. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know him that well. I had that one interview and then I haven't really worked with him since. I know people have mixed relationships with him, but without him, a lot of what is film in Philadelphia wouldn't exist. So much respect to him and much respect to Travis Crawford. You know, Danger After Dark, I didn't get to experience all of it, but uh, it was definitely a part of the Philadelphia Film Festival when I was first going to the, that festival, which I think right. I think I started attending in two thousand and. I think was the first time I went um, but I've been going since then and eventually me and Josh if, if people who listen to Cinepunks will know we famously had a falling out with the Philadelphia Film Society who now runs the Philadelphia Film Festival and so I haven't really been much since then <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know there's new leadership at the Philadelphia Film Society and uh, we're actually friends with one of the people who now works there and we have a good relationship with them so if there had been a philadelphia film festival we were going to go in style and make it like the cinepunks big cinepunks re-return to the festival but uh you know covid had other plans and so uh (laughs) that didn't that didn't work out for us there was no glorious return of cinepunks to the philadelphia film festival and then you moved to a different state Yo, I would have gone back for that man like (laughs) just just to be back because i have so many good memories again my negative memories aren't unjustified. Like there's been bad experiences with the Philadelphia Film Society, uh, and a little bit with the festival, but more with the Film Society. But uh, but you know, leadership changes, new people come in, and uh, as people know, Cinepunks is not a haven for haters. Man, we make that a big deal. So they, you know, the folks that we know who work there reached out to us and were like, "Can we like be on good terms?" And we we're like, "Yeah, of course we can." So you know, that's who we are. We're we're a forgiving organization. <laughs> Well, we're specifically talking about the 2008 Danger After Dark program which, dedicated to films, mm-hmm. which I went to. I was, I definitely went. I did not see these two movies. I, I missed these, but I was an, an attendee at this year at the at the Philadelphia Film Festival. So this podcast, Cinema Fantastica, is about attending festivals that we were unable to attend, except you attended this one. <laughs> well, I really thought, I really thought, I really thought I hadn't attended. It was only when we looked at the list, and to be fair, uh, when we did look at the the list, I actually found the booklet for it i only went sure. to one movie which i think was because i was in 2008 i was at princeton seminary still so i think uh-huh. i i only made it down to philly i think i bought or i i don't think i bought a pass but i think i bought tickets for a couple things and then couldn't make it from princeton to philly so i only went to one film of this particular festival so this uh uh Danger After Dark, uh, this particular one, it says that it's dedicated to films exploring extreme ways of telling stories, horror, fantasy, science fiction, animation, dark comedies, and adventures. And in this case, there was 19 films shown. And I have to say, I'm very impressed by the diversity of the films on display here, uh, particularly for 2008. Uh, it's very international, lots of Asian representation here. But uh, what was kind of surprising to me, Liam, is... I recognize a lot of the names here, and I've seen a number of the films on this list, but there are still probably six, seven of these that I'd never even heard of before. Well, and I think that's part of the reason. I mean, I'll put all the cards on the table here, Doug. When we first started kicking around this idea, there were two Mm -hmm. things motivating it. One was the festivals, as we say in the intro, was literally there are festivals we've never been to that we kind of – salivate over from afar you know what i mean mm-hmm. i've never Absolutely. i've never been able to go to fantasia you have right you've been to fantasia no no oh you've never been nope. to fantasia either so part of it was fantasia where we started with this series and like you know wishing i could go to that but part of it was this danger after dark thing because i i really think travis crawford again i don't know him we don't have a relationship i think he did amazing work during his run with this festival and really uh you know literally looking at this list I only got to see one of these movies, and it was bad. That was it. That was my entire experience in 2008. I went to one movie, and I didn't enjoy it. Well, tell us what it is. What was the movie that Uh, you saw? The Last House in the Woods uh, is an Italian film, and I really disliked it, uh, and I was really excited to see it, and it was a bad experience. And I took two friends, (laughs) and they both had a bad time. So that, that that was a bummer. But, you know, that being said, I still have entirely positive memories of his programming, and I really think... Uh, he was able to bring stuff that was really unique. I mean, some of our 
you know, some other people were doing things like that. Like I would lift up the programming of like Grady Hendrix, like when he sure. was doing stuff. I mean, he still does stuff, but when he was sort of in his prime, he was bringing some crazy stuff. But I think Travis Crawford really, really made the Philadelphia Film Festival a lot, but I don't think he got that as much shine as he could have. And that was really like me knowing, oh, there were so many years where Travis Crawford did great things and like nobody talks about those movies anymore except for if you were there. You know, like if you saw it, then you might still talk about it, but that's it. And that was part of my motivation is like, if we use this topic, this gives us a chance to talk about movies that aren't really on the radar right now. Like the two movies we talk, we're talking about today, I haven't heard anyone, no matter how nerdy, no matter how, you know, Asian focused they are in their genre love, no one talks about these movies. And I think they're at least worth citing, even if I may not love both of them, you know? Well, today we're here to talk about two genre films part of this Danger After Dark segment of the Philadelphia Film Festival. Uh, we do have a list here of all the films that played in the 2008 Danger After Dark. Uh, some recognizable films here, like Time Crimes by uh, Nacho Vigalondo, um, uh, Stuart Gordon's Stuck, uh, Bad Biology by Frank Henenlotter. Like some movies that I think a lot of genre fans would probably recognize. Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer, if you recall that. I bring that up because it's Canadian. Um, but a lot of, especially some of the Asian films uh, listed, are ones that I had not heard of before. And we have chosen, Liam, for this episode, to talk about Epitaph by the Young Brothers, as well as Sue um, by Sai Yoichi, uh, also known as Choi Yang Yi. Um, and both of these films, as you mentioned, not ones that we hear a lot about. And I don't think that's necessarily tied to their respective qualities i will say that uh, and we'll talk about this after the uh, break when we come back to talk about sue not really easy films to track down sue is not streaming anywhere uh you can't even purchase it to rent anywhere it's not in any of the usual spots you can't purchase it on google play you can't purchase really it's just not available which is kind of strange because it must have had a little bit of heat after its release because they tried to turn it into a tv series liam for fx well, and I don't think that's a unique experience to this no. festival, right? Like, uh, famously, I went to a Fantastic Fest one year and saw a movie called uh, A Samurai and His Boy, or A Boy and His right. Samurai. A Boy and His Samurai. Mm -hmm. And uh, I loved it. And it has never existed anywhere outside of Japan. Like, you know, the only time I even heard of it again was uh, when I was working at Lafayette the Japanese cultural group, someone had like a illegal copy that they showed at like their club gathering. And I almost mm. went to the club thing just so I could see the movie again because it's so hard to find. Uh, but that happens. You go to a festival, you see something, and then who knows what happens to it after. Uh, maybe Sue had leaked. Maybe there was, because there was heat around it, there was then legal trouble about who had the rights and who was going to release what. With a, with, a, with a boy and a samurai, it just was like, you know, no one could agree on the international rights and then it went away, you know, and that's just how it happens. I don't know. These days, it's a lot harder to put these things in the closet. But I was surprised simply because this is a movie, you know, this it, this was obviously a movie with really decent production values with some name stars. And it was just really, really hard to track down. But maybe what we should do, Liam, is let's take a break. Because, again, we're supposed to be fighting here. We're, we're in a conflict. Oh, yeah. I hate your movie, you dumbass. <laughs> The movie that you chose for this episode is Sue from the year 2007, and we're going to talk about it right after this. Two thousand seven Sue is an unflinching drama of violence and revenge that makes for classic danger after dark fare. Korean Japanese director Yochi Sai's brutal film follows a policeman on a deranged crusade to avenge his twin brother's death at the hands of a ruthless gang of thugs, which is not exactly true, right? No. <laughs> and then it, this description ends with, you want dark, you got it. Uh, <laughs> if that name sounds familiar, uh, Yochi Sai, which I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, he also directed Blood and Bones with Takeshi Kitano, uh, a fact that Doug filled me in on, and I realized I have seen that movie. So that's interesting. 
this is his, I think, only Korean production, though, right? Uh, yeah, he's a Japanese director, right. but uh, yeah. And so this stars uh, Jin Hee Ji, uh, Seong Yeon Kang, uh, Man Seok Oh, and other names that I will butcher as well, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, point is, it's not exactly the it, it, I, the description. I think is meant not to spoil things for you, but in reality, there are two twin brothers. One is a police officer. One is actually a mob enforcer, and the police officer is the one that gets shot. So it's the mob enforcer who pretends to be his twin, who's a cop, to investigate. I I wouldn't even say investigate, but get revenge on what ends up being criminal forces so it's like he's sort of turning on his own for his yeah. his estranged twin brother um and it the, the description kind of leaves out the redemption angle which is uh they're estranged because of something that happened in their childhood basically the one twin who became a cop suffered punishment for something the young the other twin did uh who yes. who became a mob enforcer and so uh there's this idea that that uh, there's a bit of like uh, redemption there. There's also an angle where uh, the the Sue has to work with his dead brother's, uh, you know, love interest, lady friend, yep. and that mm-hmm. adds a whole other angle. And and honestly, there's a lot of sort of weird angles on this thing going on, including other police officers and things like that. But before we get into too much of the weeds, I just want to start Doug with a simple question to you. <laughs> What did you think of 2007's Sue? You know what I love about this movie is the concept, right? Because it feels very much, you know, it's kind of Infernal's, uh, Infernal Affairs-ish or the, the Departed, you know, where you have these two sides and there's this, this all this kind of switching in uh, amongst them. It's a kind of a concept, kind of the mirror image thing that John Woo was a big fan of in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, just this idea that this guy, this badass mob enforcer who is supposed to have like like he's hated by the police because he just gets away with things all the time he's supposed to be completely soulless and heartless but there's one thing in this world that he cares about and he's been searching for his brother who he has wronged as you know it, not not intentionally but had wronged and had been separated for decades he tracks him down they reunite and his brother who's a cop gets killed right in front of them and then the rest of the movie is all about him taking revenge on the people who killed him and the form that that takes is him pretending to be his brother in a police station and doing police work which i guess he can just do he has no trouble at all doing that at all um and look there's a lot of hard to swallow aspects of this movie but the thing that really works actually there's two things that i think really work one is the performances i do think that uh Jin he in the lead does a really good job i guess he was known kind of as like a um as, as kind of like a young heartthrob actor at the time, and this was him kind of breaking out. Uh, and I think that he does a really, really good job here. But the other thing is the fight scenes and the violence in the movie. The violence is super brutal in this movie. And the fight scenes are the kind of fight scenes that you do see in Korean movies sometimes where they're, they're not like overly choreographed. They look like people are getting hurt and people get stabbed and they keep going. It's not just someone gets shot and then they're dead and then they just go away. People get shot, and then they're showing the effects of being shot, and then they're trying to pull themselves forward. The the beating that Sue takes in this movie, particularly in the last half hour, is almost comical. How much violence get like he gets beaten by baseball bats and stabbed and shot at, and like he just keeps going and going. And that really is just reinforcing the main point, which is this is a guy who has dedicated his life at this point to revenge. And, uh, I mean, while this, I don't think, would fit in the category of the great Korean revenge movies, and there's a lot of them, it's still, I think, a very, very entertaining movie. I agree. I think one of the things that actually is so funny is, for a lot of people, their first Korean revenge movie might have been Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And it's hard to remember that the reason Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance works is because revenge films were such a fucking cliché in sure. Korean cinema at that time that making a movie deconstructing that like works because it's like everybody knows it but like for a lot of audiences they probably watch that thinking like oh okay I, this is a weird take on a revenge movie but it's like it's such a classic sort of uh, uh, Korean film thing uh, yeah I, I think well, the way I would put some of what you said for me was the pacing of it the sort of movie <laughs> yeah. that 
has so many quiet, uh, interactive, almost awkwardly shot moments, and how those moments simply build towards these insane explosions of violence, but in shot in a way like you know, I, I mentioned sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Think also of something like Old Boy. Old, yeah. Old Boy stands out from a movie like this because Old Boy is so stylized. It's so flashy. It's so, in a sense, honestly, Hollywood in how it's done. Sure. Absolutely. Sue is not that. Like, the no. these scenes are shot in a way where it's like, you know, I mean, sure, Old Boy has that, that hallway scene, but that hallway scene is meant to fucking wow you. Sue is like... Yeah. Here's just one shot of this guy really just punching all these dudes. You know what I mean? It's not. There's nothing about it where you're like, oh man, he's false. Look at the fucking choreography. It literally looks like these people are actually just hitting each other desperately, and in a hope that, like, okay, hopefully he stays down this time. You know, and all of that. The 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 pacing of going from the more quiet moments to these like extreme moments really works for me. And it really propels the movie forward uh, in a way that I very much enjoyed and very, very much made me stick, stick with it. Um, You brought up the performance of our main actor here, uh, Jin Hee Ji. And I wanted to ask you, you know, he has a task here. He's not just uh, one character. He's two characters. Now, granted we spend more time with one of those characters, but still that two in one thing is not, easy to do do you do you enjoy when actors are asked to like double up like this do you think that works do you think it's kind of gimmicky like sometimes i think when this is part of a movie people are automatically bummed on it because they just assume it's going to be a like a cheesy gimmick you know what i mean like are you into that and do you think he handled it well i mean it is a gimmick right i mean that's it is kind of the the conceit in this movie is this guy is taking on the role of basically his opposite and but that's fun right i mean it's fun to watch an actor Take a challenge on like that, just like it's fun to watch Nicolas Cage and John Travolta in Face Off, and try they're trying to do something a little bit different. Uh, I guess it's a little different for us because we haven't seen uh, the performers in this in as many movies, right? So this is it, it's hard to understand exactly what this guy is breaking away from in his career. And I'm talking about the actor now when you haven't experienced a lot of that previous career. And if you were a Korean audience member, it probably is a little bit more impressive or whatever it might be because it, it you're coming at it from a different context. But for me, it's fun because it adds that extra level of tension where you have this character kind of removed from his life and put into this uh, situation where he really shouldn't be able to fit in at all. The kind of funny thing about the movie is that he seems to fit in with the cops, even though some of them become suspicious of him right away. One thing I really like about this movie is that it starts off by showing Sue as being exactly what you said the rest of the movie isn't, Liam, which is that he's incredibly competent. He, you know, We see him kind of uh, t- to kidnap and take out this entire gang at the beginning sure, of a movie yeah. because it's his job, and he does it with a car, and he's using this car almost like it's an extension of his body, and he like there's never even a suggestion that he might get caught. He just knows exactly what he's doing all the time, but then once he's put into this other position, uh, you know, trying to, to hunt down his brother's killer, and he has all of these... I guess more competent people against him. That's when the violence gets messy. And um, well, he's I also th- caught by surprise, right? Like mm-hmm. he he orchestrates a situation where he is in total control. Suddenly, he's now in a situation where he keeps getting caught unawares, and there's nothing he can yes. do to change that. He just he doesn't get to control the situation. He just has to survive. There's a great bit where he's uh, they're in him and his brother's uh, girlfriend um, are in a apartment and suddenly outside the door, there's someone trying to drill in through the door and there's this whole hallway full of people. And that is an an example of it being incredibly messy, but also an example of his competence at the same time. He, you know, turns some hairspray into a flamethrower to blow at them. And then he heads out and it's just, it's super messy. It's not like the, like the old boy fight scene, the famous fight scene. I really love it. I don't, don't get me wrong. And that is a messy scene in a lot of ways too, but it also is, it feels extremely choreographed because it has to be because it's it's very stylized like you said this one feels like it is you know bodies being thrown against each other people getting punched in the face and knocked around and it's just in this incredibly tight quarters uh i do like the diversity of the kind of action that you see in this i will say that even though i'm glad like you said that there are those quiet moments and i think it it makes the the action stand out more 
I do wish there was a little bit more action in the movie because this is a fairly lengthy movie and especially as you're leading into the final half hour, which has a lot of really great action in it, it starts to... I guess I started thinking about the plot too much and this is a plot that if you think about it too much, it starts to unravel because it doesn't fully make a lot of sense. Just the idea of him, again, walking into a police station just because he looks like his brother and being able to just to do the work of a, of a homicide detective immediately. Well, I think that this is the issue, though, with any of these. Like, whenever you're a two-in-one movie, it's almost always twins. And yeah. the way we portray twins is just not real. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, when they're kids, when you see three-year-old twins, I believe you that you can't tell them apart. I 100% believe you. But if you really want to say that you you know adult twins and you just couldn't tell them apart if your life depended on it you probably just aren't paying enough attention like it's just not real like most twins by the time they're fully adults you, they couldn't just cut their hair and be the other twin that's not in really this case, how it works in this case he has to cut his hair and create a scar on his chin to match his brothers it doesn't yeah and especially because it would still be scabbed up like, you don't think they notice that you have a big scab on your chin? It's the whole thing doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So all of that, the premise itself is an, is an issue altogether. I think also, like, uh, it is such an established genre that we don't question it. But oftentimes the plot of any revenge film doesn't work because the folks... In order for the movie to move forward, whoever it is who's seeking revenge has to be like really fucking good at it. Instead of like <laughs> the reality would be like they would get one person and then that's it. And then whoever's really in charge right. gets away. Doug, do you are you a revenge film person? For me, I I, I kind of have a mixed relationship with them. Uh I, and and I don't have a huge list of revenge films that I love. But Doug, I know you're kind of a bloodthirsty monster, so I feel like you probably <laughs> like revenge films. I mean, I do. I really love that as a conceit while recognizing that it it probably perpetuates a lot of negative things in film generally. But those Korean, like when we talked about Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Old Boy and Lady Vengeance, that trilogy, uh, that was in the early 2000s for me, like that was it. I was obsessed with those movies. And then that expanded outwards to more Korean revenge movies like I Saw the Devil, which is a movie that I really love as well. Um uh, it, it, it is a very reliable genre. I will say that one of the interesting things about those uh, Park Chan-wook movies is that they, they really, as you already said, they kind of shift expectations as you're watching them. They, they set things up and then they go in a completely different direction. And even though we all probably know what the plot of Old Boy is now, believe me, when the first time I saw it, I had no idea where that movie was going and certainly the big shock near the end took me completely by surprise so oh my brain exploded it, like it was just like wait what the fuck yeah, yeah, yeah it does require a lot of twists and it's it is very much based on your ability to buy in on those twists that whether you're going to really uh enjoy especially as they go along those kind of movies this again this one's kind of unique because it kind of ha- mixes in with more like a like a johnny toe type uh, right. cops and robbers movie uh so it it brings in other elements but it does have that kind of viciousness to it but one of the things that we were talking about was whether the violence in this movie almost it's not that it goes too far in terms of of gore necessarily but just the fact that some of these action scenes go on long enough that they start to become a little bit funny as you're watching them it's just the violence it's just like one person getting so much you know so much violence against them and we're talking specifically about sue in this case and specifically in that last sequence where he's just getting beaten more and more and more and he just has to kind of pull himself up and keep going i think it's going for like a rocky thing where it's just like oh my god yeah you got to get your revenge boy but <laughs> by the end you're thinking it's like geez dude just stay down it's you've gotten about as far as you can get in this case. it's not just him either the the at the very end the big boss guy yeah. has been shot and stabbed and he's still he's mm-hmm. still going i think that you know I, I had it in the notes here. How many times can one person be shot? I mean, th- there are definitely moments in this film where uh, main characters and even a couple of side extra people get a lot of abuse and still manage to keep going. And, and True. it's a weird combo of like realistic in that no one again, this is not a this is not a wuxia film. No one's on on strings here. Everyone is throwing punches like normal people throw punches for the most part. But what's utterly unrealistic is the amount of violence and abuse that they can take and still keep going and you know i really did start to think like 
is this funny? And is it meant to be funny? I'm okay. If it's funny, it's funny. But I can't tell if it's meant to be funny or if on set they're like, yeah, this part's really tough when he gets up and he goes again. <laughs> or if they're sitting there going like, yeah, no, we're, we're totally over the top. You know, it, it made me think, uh, Doug, of some of the ultra-violent samurai films, you know? Sure. At some point when the blood is shooting out, it's funny, right? Like it can't, you can't be like, no, this is a really dramatic moment. Is it though? You know, like, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell sometimes if the people on set are laughing the way that I'm laughing. You know, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. I think back to that part in, I think it's the second Lone Wolf and Cub movie where he slits the guy's throat and the guy stops and has a monologue about like the, the the sound of the wind. It's, this part's in Shogun Assassin as well, right? Uh, and he has this monologue about that the that who thought that you know I would be hearing this sound myself. And I remember seeing that for the first time and thinking that it's so funny. But it is also supposed to be this kind of tragic moment at the same time. I I do think that in the case certainly of the 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 kind of the final big action scene that you're supposed to think that it's gone so far that it's comical. But there's a part in this movie where Sue uh, basically tracks down a suspect. There's a guy who comes into the police station and he recognizes that Sue is Sue and it's not his brother. And afterwards he tries to track him down and he runs after him after that guy tries to actually shoot him to assassinate him. He tracks him down and he slits his throat in like an alleyway. And it's this incredibly brutal thing that happens, and certainly that isn't meant to be funny. It's treated really kind of seriously, uh, and and it's it it kind of reminds you, it pushes you back into the mentality that Sue is actually a real ruthless killer. That's who he is. Even if the guy that he's slitting the throat of is is a really bad guy, he's a bad guy too. Uh, and I like that they reinforce that. But by the end of the movie, all you're supposed to be thinking is. This guy has to get his revenge, even if he has to go through hell to get it, and even if he has to go through almost comic book levels of violence to get there. Yeah, I mean, there is a moment, as ridiculous as this movie is, there was a moment towards the end where I thought, they might end this with him not being successful. Like, yeah, right? Because he goes through so much stuff, and it's so funny, because in an American film, I would be like, nah, he's got to get up. You know, he's got to get up. There's no way they can end it like this. But, you know, things can be so unexpected in other in cinema from other countries that it might be like, nah, he might just die like right here. And that's it. You know, like, I, I don't know. I, I kind of appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask a real quick uh, question to you, Doug. Um, we know we talked a little bit about how Sue interacts with his twin brother's love interest and she ends up, uh, you know, maybe not being a partner, but, but at some point being a collaborator in his quest for justice. Sure. Um, can you name one other female character in this film? <laughs> nope. Not at all. No, this is not a movie that's interested in women as anything but an extension of the cliches that they're 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 kind of dealing in. Even the even her fascination with him doesn't make sense. I do like that she does get a couple of really interesting moments. I love when she gets confronted by the other police officer and uh, she's in the backseat of the car and she just beats the living shit out of him just like to the point where he has to wear a bandage on his head for the rest of the movie. Um, I did like that. It was a lot, so good. Yeah. It was so good. And, and and the way she was doing it was so clearly like a, a work, like you do it because you're frustrated. You know, it's just like a, yeah. you idiot, you stupid idiot. You know, it's just. It's yeah, just you're really... not there to kill the guy, but you're like, I'm just going to beat on him until my frustration doesn't feel as strong anymore. Right, 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 <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, you know, believe me, it's something that really stuck out. But I mean, honestly, in in terms of the mold that uh, that that this kept bringing me back to, which would be maybe kind of those um, prime era John Woo movies like The Killer and Hard Boiled. I mean, the female characters always take a seat, a back seat in those movies as well. I'm not justifying it, uh, but definitely in this movie, uh, I mean, I'm glad that it has a female character. But of course. I was like, one of the things I was kind of interested in, like a half hour in, was, oh, he doesn't have a love interest. That's not something that we're going to have to deal with in this movie, kind of attacked on love interest. And then they managed to fit it in anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the... I mean, I don't really buy that they that those two have any sort of actual affection for each other. Like, sure. it's clearly just a, a working out of their mourning, in a sense. But still, it's so unnecessary. I, My feeling on it is... Yes, this is a male-centric movie, so whatever, whatever. But uh, because she's the only like real female character, it kind of made the aspects of her character that are a little more obsessed or, or, or I don't know. If there was any other women who spoke in this movie, 
then I feel like her character would be better for me because it's like, oh, she's part of a whole you know bunch of women in this movie. But because she's the o- basically the only woman who ha- has a character in this film, it made me be like I wanted more of her stronger moments. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I wanted her to have more space. Whereas if she was part of a of a of a series of women who all lived and breathed and had agency <laughs> that it would be like okay well that's just who she is you know whatever i think it puts undue pressure on her that she is the only woman in this world for the most part so uh that was a little weird but that then again that being said i did like her character and her performance i thought was great like that actress to i, me I love the part where she's She's come back to the apartment and she's making coffee and he's like pissed. He's like, "Get out of here! You got to get out of here!" And just before she leaves, she just flips the table over. So good! <laughs> it's so good. Uh, so I guess I, I'm I'm glad that there are moments of agency there. But you're absolutely right. This is a, a movie that is uh, uninterested in the female perspective. It is what it is for what it is. But uh, let's just wrap up here at the ending here. We've kind of said, we kind of suggested, like, hopefully, y'all, we didn't totally spoil it for you, but my man gets his revenge. How did you feel about how the movie ended? I mean, it's at a certain point, and you were talking about the comical aspect of it. At a certain point, Sue gets so much damage uh, against him that you kind of know how it's going to end. Um, you might not know exactly how it's going to play out, but you know that things are not going to go well for like, he's not, he's not going to be walking away from this and he's going to show up at the end in a couple of bandages and being like, Hey, I'm fine. Let's continue our relationship. Uh, It's, it's bittersweet. And, um, and it, it does create, you know what, Liam, I got to say, I like a movie that just has a definitive ending, even though this one has a certain amount of wiggle room, um, that it's not being set up for Sue too, you know? If this isn't a movie that's meant to be part of a franchise of films about this guy. This guy, you know, he he's absolutely dedicated to this revenge. He gets it in as messy a manner as possible, and then he uh, there's a moment where um, where he almost has to be put down like a rabid dog, but he at least kind of goes out on his own terms. I do think that the moment where it looks like she's going to shoot him. Because she sees what he actually is, I feel like it doesn't really earn that moment necessarily. But the fact that it doesn't end on that is is um, I think it, it makes it okay. But yeah, it's it to me it's it's a very kind of satisfying wrap up, even if uh, you ended up loving this character. But I can't imagine that you you come out of this thinking that this is a character that I just want to go on and live in the world and you know cont- there's no coming back from the the level of revenge that he's a part of here. Yeah, I agree. Um... Yeah, it's it's sort of like the ending that has to happen, uh, but I still found yeah. it relatively satisfying. Uh, well, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that this is the superior film, but <laughs> let's just go ahead and take a break, and then we can go through the motions of pretending like your film matters. All right. Well, after this break, Liam, let's talk about Epitaph from 2007. A chill is in the air as unrequited obsessive love is swept up in a sea of blood in this South Korean box office sensation that takes Asian horror in a new direction. It's Epitaph from the year 2007, directed by the, I don't know if it's, it's Jung or Young, most likely Young Brothers, uh, Sik Young and Boom Sik Young, uh, the Korean filmmakers. One of them is uh, a director in his own right, directed Hot Desire in 2013 and Ganjam Haunted Asylum in 2018. And the other, uh, Sik Jung, uh, directed, or actually was the second unit director, on Old Boy and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, so uh, definitely a strong pedigree here. Uh, this is a very unique movie. Uh, for those who don't know ahead of time, it, you might not realize that it's kind of an anthology movie. It all takes place in this 
this hospital in the 1940s, uh, while Korea is being occupied by the Japanese, it starts in the late 70s, and then it flashes back to the 1940s, and there's all these spooky goings-on in this hospital. It kind of reminded me of the Lars von Trier series, The Kingdom, where it's just, there's a lot of weirdness happening, and, and it, it, there's all these kind of, there's a larger story, and there's all these kind of smaller stories occurring at the same time. Whether you're going to take to this movie is going to be dependent on whether you connect with these three stories, all of which, as the plot summary suggested, have a theme of love and, to a certain extent, unrequited love and the power of love to kind of transcend death. But then it's mixing these kind of romantic elements with very uh, kind of traditional Asian and, in some cases, almost Japanese-style horror where you have kind of the long-haired ghost woman that you see and that sort of thing. This movie has an incredible visual style. Uh, there's some incredibly unique and, and uh, uh, stylized moments, uh, and we'll talk about that as we go through it. I really liked it. I really liked this movie a lot. Uh, it kind of took me by surprise, the direction that it was going in. Uh, but I do have to say that of the three kind of main stories that you're encountering in it, I don't like them all equally. And I do think that it kind of starts with the weakest of the stories. But uh, I want to get, Liam, your thoughts. What did you think of Epitaph? Well, it's <laughs> there. There's a certain mixture of uh, romance and uh, horror that I've seen in a number of uh, Korean films, uh, Japanese films too, but uh, in Korean films that it, it just doesn't vibe with me. I don't always get the the emotional resonance of what's happening, and it just sort of happens, and I and I don't understand it, and that's sure. kind of how I felt about this movie. Now, granted. I was kind of tired when I first started this movie, so I feel like the beginning was a little bit jumbled. But even without the beginning, as you said, there's three different stories here. And while I understood what was happening intellectually (laughs) from an emotional (laughs) standpoint, a lot of times things were happening. And I thought, I don't I don't understand why I'm meant to care about this, you know, and um, uh, it, it, it feels like. Post uh, Magnolia, mm-hmm. there was a trend in American films to do a lot of things where it's like it's a bunch of desperate stories, but it's not because they're all connected because we're all connected in the fabric <laughs> of life. And this is sort of like the gothic horror version of that, you know, where it's like we're all in this hospital together. We're all going through various struggles that are both literal and supernatural and we're all sort of connected. And so this is the story of all of our suffering. And uh, it just felt like a cheap workaround to just do an anthology movie. Uh, It didn't feel like it worked for me as like a coherent whole. Uh, There's a couple of very effective scary moments. Like just Mm. there, I was like, whoa, okay, that was really good. But uh a lot of the mystery of it all and the the build up just wasn't there for me. I didn't love the pacing. It felt very long. Um and really I only really kind of like one of the stories in any way. Uh and then the other ones were just sort of like there. They're fine, but I, they just didn't really connect with me. So I'm just going to go through these stories really quickly uh about what the kind of plots are. The first one uh is about a medical student who has been uh, basically set up with this girl that he knew when he was a child, um, and and she's coming to visit him, and they're supposed to get married, but then uh, a corpse arrives, a corpse of a young girl who has committed suicide. He, uh, while he's working in uh, the morgue, starts to obsess about this corpse, and we find out that it was actually the corpse of this uh, girl that he was supposed to marry. And in fact, uh, the person who runs this entire hospital, uh, she has actually married them, even though one of them is, is dead. Um, and then it goes into spooky, ghostly, uh, supernatural places. Um, I, I do think it's the weakest story of, of the lot, but I also think that it kind of establishes this idea of love being stronger than death, that sort of thing. I, I was surprised that, that you didn't like at least one of these other two. The second one is about a young girl who's involved in a car accident, um, and she's basically catatonic in the hospital, and one of the doctors tries to get through to her, and as he does, uh, as he kind of works with her, more and more of the details of what happened um, and and her kind of um, how much she connects to the accident starts to come out. And while this is all happening, she's also having these supernatural experiences where she's haunted by both her mother and her um, 
her mother's lover. And I think this is the most kind of directly scary segment. Uh, It's just a lot of really nightmarish imagery happening, and especially because it's happening to a child who is really effective at showing showing herself being terrified in this. I think it's a really... uh, This one, to me, it's like you could almost cut out of the movie and it would be effective even as a kind of a short film. And then the third... Uh, involves uh, uh, one of the instructors at this uh, school slash hospital who um, is trying him and his wife are trying to figure out what's go- going on with this series of murders that's taking place uh, and what you discover or what he discovers is that his wife doesn't cast a shadow and that leads to him to investigate what's going on with her and then he discovers that perhaps she actually died during this uh, segment of brain surgery that we see a few times in the movie and then that goes into some really interesting places that I was not expecting at all. So I know that was a long kind of explanation of what's happening in these three stories but like you said Liam when you're watching it because they interweave and because you see some segments actually play multiple times from different perspectives, it can be a little confusing to kind of separate it all out. Though I do think it's a movie that if you watch it a second time, it would all kind of fit into place. I don't think it's meant to be really, really confusing. So tell me of those three stories, how do you rank them? Oh, the only one I liked was the last one. And even that felt like a cheesy student film to me. Interesting. Um, uh, Yeah. The whole like, well, I don't, I don't know how much we want to spoil here. Uh, I'm trying not to spoil the big reveal right. in it because it's a that one's like a super mind fuck. I mean, it really it goes to a place that I just was not expecting. I, but there's a there's a there's a line between like whoa that's crazy and whoa I can't believe you were willing to put that in a movie, and <laughs> uh, this really danced on that line for me. But that at least made it interesting. I thought the first story was. It wasn't bad, but it was hard for me to care about what was happening. I just, I just, you know, I, I was having trouble connecting with it. And I thought the second story was terrible and stupid and really, Interesting. really pushed the boundaries of like, for me, the boundaries of taste are not about being offended. It's about mm-hmm. something becoming corny, you know? And for me, like the big sort of reveal in the car of like what happened was like, really? shut up you know like i just it felt like um it felt like a dressed up version of something like uh lincoln park would come up with or (laughs) like like this is like an icp thing you know what i mean (laughs) like it was like it's basically like a south korean edgelord story you know the the really did you think it was so edgy i didn't think i mean how so her her declaring that she's gonna uh uh uh, fuck her potential yeah, so like, stepdad. I mean, she just has this childhood obsession with this father figure. I don't think it's supposed to be. But the seen moment, as anything but the serious. moment, no, no, no. But the idea that she says it in the car and distracts yeah. them, and that's when they crash, and it's all on her. Blah blah. blah. Stupid, 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 <laughs> stupid. I kind of, it, it kind of, the only part that even emotionally clicked for me at all was the sort of denouement of, like, of course her mom still loves her and forgives her and doesn't take it seriously. Like, that, her realization of that and her willingness to let go because of that, that all works, that part works for me. But the lead up is just dumb. It just, for me, it just felt like it was an unearned corny like whoa isn't that crazy and i just was, was like, no it's not crazy actually i don't know to me it just felt like maybe a little more extreme like outer limits type episode where you know the story slowly unravels but i mean it, i think what's interesting about the ending of it is that it it provides this sort of relief it's not all about the scares anymore that it's 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 providing sure. uh some sort of emotional um uh, conclusion to what she's dealing with to this trauma that she's experienced and that that it allows her to kind of move on even if she <laughs> even if she doesn't move on emotionally for very long before something else happens uh but what what was it about the third story that that at least you were able to connect with uh maybe emotionally um i just i understood the motivations of what was going on i mean it's it's definitely a reach and uh i think both reveals like that's not how mental health works, really. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know that sort of trope uh, is one I'm familiar with, and I thought actually the pace of the end, where they've sort of figured out who the killer is and 
they're trying to get it that like sort of picked up the pace a little bit for me whereas other parts of the movie just really dragged just really huh. the, the this movie felt glacial to me except for the jump scares and uh and and me and at least the forward momentum of the end of that part let, let's not call it the ending but the climax of that story felt very good yeah i mean i i think if you go into this thinking that it's going to be like a spooky like a juan type story that that's going to be a really difficult thing to kind of um jive with what the actual movie is which is a very kind of tragic series of stories and even the kind of framing story is meant to be very tragic um that it's you know that even when when people are 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 not left with their trauma that you know nothing good is happening at the end of these stories and it is about love at its core which i think is pretty unique for a horror movie like this as well i do have to say like like yourself i did connect most with this third story even though it does have a very ridiculous view of how mental health works though i guess you could extend that as being part of the supernatural element because otherwise there isn't really anything supernatural going on in this third story um well it sort of takes i mean i think the the let's say the first reveal is possibly supernatural that it's it it leaves it open it could be supernatural it could be psychological and it doesn't matter it's the second reveal that you're like and that doesn't make it bad it's just that's when they're like nope not supernatural just psychological but also you're like right but this level of psychological is basically supernatural because there's that just doesn't happen yeah uh, so, I mean, I, I do have to say, obviously, I've re- responded to this very differently than you. Um, one of the things that that is unique about this movie is that it takes place at a time in history. For one thing, it's a horror movie that takes place um, in the past, which we don't see a ton of those. Um, and specifically this era during World War II, during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Now, I have to say, my knowledge specifically about this area of the world at this time period is extremely limited but what and and it doesn't play into the plot a lot until the third story but what do you think the the resonance of that is supposed to be in the movie just the fact that things are are <laughs> things are kind of fucked up anyway even outside of the supernatural goings on i guess so i mean i don't know that the film really pushes it too hard until the last story. And even then, it doesn't make a direct connection because uh, it's not clear that the events that created that situation are connected to the Japanese directly. You know what I mean? Like, it, I don't know. It's hard because it's, it's hard to know why this hospital is kind of ground zero for all of this supernatural stuff, right? Like, what is it about this place? It's not like, again, a lot of these Japanese uh, horror movies that they they explain that you know with the Juan movie that there's a kind of a uh, a curse that stays with the house when a traumatic thing happens within it uh or the ring right where it's kind of a curse that gets passed on from person to person there's no real explanation for why this hospital is so screwed up no and the movie sort of ends on this note of like no, nothing lasts forever or something which is just yeah, like yeah. a weird theme for this movie i don't know like uh, it's 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 Again, this is part of my disconnect is I, I didn't get a lot of the emotional resonance. I also didn't quite get the thematic resonance. Like what why what why this? What is it about this? What what why is this the thing? You know, I, I don't know. Again, I think it's worth saying, you know, we might just be missing something culturally, but uh but I don't know. It it whatever it was didn't translate for me. Yeah, especially because it's interesting that that the film is rather sympathetic to the Japanese in this movie. Uh, in that third story, there is a Japanese soldier who's trying to find out you know, who's killing off all of these people. Um, and, and and he's getting closer to the truth. And he's not presented as unsympathetic at all. He just is kind of doggedly pursuing the person who's murdering. And he, he actually figures out what's going on. So it's it's not presented as if like the, the uh, Korean people at its core are being themselves traumatized by what's going on in the world but maybe it just kind of echoes outward there's also a suggestion that this brain surgery that we see a few times in the movie that that is kind of the zero point for all the things that happen afterwards that that maybe the 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 result of that is what kind of created this curse in the first place but that's never explicitly said and you'd have to really read into that to, to find it so it's a little that is that aspect of it i did find a little bit confusing i did want to ask you one thing liam before we wrap up here which is that 
Do you think that these three stories were developed separately and then kind of shoehorned into this as opposed to kind of them naturally being, you know, developed as a one complete story? I don't I don't I'm not sure. I don't want to Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't want to assume one thing or the other. I will say the way it played was that they wanted you to think that these were all developed together as one coherent narrative. But my experience of it was that that was not the case, that these felt right. like desperate stories that we then created a framework. And I that's what I was sort of saying at the beginning. I prefer a movie that's just straight up like this is an anthology movie as opposed to a film that seems to be like we're all connected into one big narrative and it's not that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that the movie does a good job of of making sure that we see how the parts are all connected, that these things are all happening sure. simultaneously, and that we see you know characters that are shown just for a moment at the beginning, they're later developed on a little bit more. I, I like how that all comes together, and and maybe I'm not as irritated by that tradition as as you are because you're right. There was a period of time when you know maybe post Magnolia where Paul Thomas Anderson was really reaching into his Robert Altman bag of tricks and trying to uh, to push that kind of as a, a form that a lot of movies were taking. Uh, I do think that the visual style of this movie is something we haven't really talked about in any detail, and I think that there are some incredible moments visually. I do think that the part where the uh, doctor is trying to show his wife that she has no shadow is, I think, is incredibly well done. And also the sequences immediately after that where we see her walking and they use visual effects to make it so she is not casting a shadow. I think that that is really kind of eerie and really unique and interesting. Um, and I also, there's this part in the first story where um, we see the life of Park, who again has been set up with this this uh, dead girl, um, we see what their life together would have looked like, and it's shown through a series of doors opening, with each one showing the next step of their life, with like his wife getting pregnant and them having a child and that sort of thing. And I think it's very, very well done. And in the second story, even though there's a lot of very kind of traditionally spooky ghost uh, and, and like corpses walking around type stuff uh, that you see in a lot of horror movies, there's also a lot of really beautiful imagery around snow that you see in that segment. I really, again... I do think that even if you do not enjoy or connect with the emotional aspects of these stories, that this is still a very, uh, very beautiful movie and one that is is still kind of stunning at times visually. Yeah, I, I just don't. <laughs> I don't love this style, honestly. Um, but it is, you know, very competent, and certain moments were definitely haunting. Um, but. Uh, you know, so for example, that middle story, there's certain manifestations of the young girl's mom in a ghostly, gnarled state. Um, sure. I think they could have shown her a little less because I don't think she was that visually impressive. I thought it, she mm. was kind of a letdown. And if they had used her less or hinted at her more, it would have been more effective. And there's a couple things like that in the movie that kind of bummed me out a little bit. Um but overall, yeah, I think it was pretty good in that way. Um, and uh, the moments that were scary were very well done. It's just, it's it's hard. I just felt like the editing choices of the non-scary parts just very much dragged for, for me and my experience of the film. I do have to say that some of the editing I found extremely confusing to follow sure, at times. Sure. There's this part where a child soldier gets murdered in the third story. And I had trouble telling even what was going on during that. It was kind of, it, it just, the action didn't flow for me properly. That said, Liam, this is an interesting thing on cinema. Fantastica, even though the conceit that we have here for the show is that we are, uh, butting heads on two movies. We generally don't really do that, but here we really are. I liked Sue, but I really liked epitaph. I think it's actually the better movie, but you clearly liked Sue more, way more, uh, way more. I wouldn't necessarily lift Sue up as like a favorite or anything, but I would be very satisfied to see this at like a late night screening at a film festival. I don't think I could have. I mean, I had trouble staying awake at home for Epitaph. I, I don't think I could have stayed awake at a late night screening of Epitaph. I think I would have slept through a chunk of it. It, it just didn't grab me. Um, I didn't really feel compelled by it. So that's just interesting. This is one of the, not that our taste is that similar, but this is one of the few places where we're diverging on in such a strong sure. way. You know, mm -hmm. um, if, um, if for me, if I had to, if, if we're gonna vote, I'm going with Sue, man. I just think it's a stronger film in a lot of ways, and 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 
Epitaph is like uh, is maybe a satisfying DVD like discount DVD buy. Well, th- uh, thankfully, my vote is worth two votes. <laughs> no, uh, I'm going to leave this one up to the listeners. Have you seen Sue? Have you seen Epitaph? Why don't you leave us a, uh, a comment or leave us a uh, email through our site at cinemasmorgasbord.com and uh, let us know what you think. Let us know. If, even if you've only seen one of these movies, tell us what you think. Tell us uh, which one is a superior and really go into detail about how Liam is wrong about his opinion on right, Epitaph. Right, right. Liam, if people do want to check us out on social media or elsewhere, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can uh, follow Cinepunks to keep up with not only us, but a whole family of uh, podcasts. Uh, they can go to Cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X.com. Or follow Cinepunks, uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, they can also follow us on Twitter, Cinema Smorg. S-M-O-R-G. Uh, or they can go to cinemasmorgasbord.com and find our latest episodes there. Uh, they can also follow you on Twitter if they like snarky Canadian humor. Uh, sure. And that's, uh, what is that again? That's Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And of course, you can follow <laughs> Liam at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z on there as well. We love getting feedback on the show. Tell your friends. And of course, if you can, go over to iTunes. Leave us a review over there. It always helps get the word out. We do have a variety of different themes on the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, including podcasts devoted to Jackie Chan, to Carol Kane, to Vic Diaz, and a whole bunch of others. Why don't you check us out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. But Liam, that's it for Cinema Fantastica this mm. go around. Mm. A big fight this time. I, mm. I feel really antsy. I want to just throw fists uh, about these two movies. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be... have a chance either way you cut it. So Yeah, I know it. Uh, we'll be back soon with another festival and another two festival favorites. Good night, everybody. Bye. <laughs>